Nuclear. Now is it crick or creek? Coyote or coyote? Sometimes I say library. Welcome to You're Saying It Wrong. I'm Fletcher Powell, and each episode we turn to the people who literally wrote the book on this, sister and brother team Kathy and Ross Petrus, and we'll dive into what we get wrong and sometimes what we get right when we try to speak this weird English language. Like a lot of people, I often use words and terms that maybe I don't completely understand. Yeah, I've got a basic idea of what they mean, but... I might not exactly know everything about them, or I might not be totally sure where they come from. So today we're going to talk about some words with confusing meanings, maybe easy words or terms, but we're not sure what they really mean. Okay, we're going to start, Fletcher, with the Oxford comma, and Kathy will do a little bit of the dialogue. We heard this actually on CNN. Anderson Cooper was talking with John Dean about the um, impeachment trial. And John Dean said that um, about whether it was a constitutional or unconstitutional argument. And John Dean said, it's a good cover. You can argue an Oxford comma is unconstitutional, but that doesn't make it so. And it went on there. And then Anderson Cooper broke in and said, very briefly, what's an Oxford comma? Is that different than a regular comma? John Dean then said it's a whole other program. So we want to ask you, Fletcher, to explain to us what is an Oxford comma? Well, the Oxford comma is is one of my favorite commas. It uh, is, I think it's also known as the serial comma. And it's, it's when you've got a series of items uh, in a sentence that you're listing off. And it is a comma that you put directly before the final item. The, uh, when you say and something. So if you've got Fletcher, Kathy, and Ross went to the store, you would have Fletcher, comma, Kathy, comma, and Ross went to the store. That final comma is that Oxford comma. In a lot of print, uh, especially in in newspapers, they've gotten rid of that comma or they, they never used it to begin with. And so you would have Fletcher, comma, Kathy and Ross went to the store. Right. You beat Anderson Cooper. <laughs> oh, yeah, and there is some thought that without that, you get into some ridiculous or ambiguous situations. And there's there's a really uh, famous one, uh, which is fake, but to my parents, Ein Rand and God. To my parents, comma, Ein Rand and God. Now, if you don't have that comma, the presumption is my parents are Ayn Rand and God. But whereas we do the comma, we have to my parents, comma, and Rand, comma, and God. And it's in this sense, it's sort of clear that my parents aren't Anne Rand and God. This is one of the things, the thing that always gets me with the Oxford comma is it, it raises, people get like really hot under the collar about it. I mean, I think most recently the uh, writer Philip Pullman, there was a Brexit uh, 50p piece, and it says peace, prosperity, and friendship with all nations. And it was peace, comma, prosperity, and friendship with all nations. And he had, he wrote, a, I think it was a letter to the editor or something, and he said, it's missing an Oxford comma, should be boycotted by all literate people. I mean, people get really, really uptight about Oxford commas or, or the lack thereof. But there's no need to be uptight about them. There, uh, there, are different, there are differing opinions about if it's necessary or not. And I don't, I don't think, I think it's good to use when you think you need to have that distinction but I would not get particularly upset about it if you didn't use it. What do you guys think? Well, I, I have strong opinions, but it's just for myself. Look, look, I use I use the Oxford comma all the time. I think I even do it when I'm writing something for my news outlet and I make the editor correct it if they want to. 
I uh, I like it. If it reduces ambiguity, I don't know why you wouldn't use it all the time. I don't exactly know the arguments against using it, except that in in print, in actual like newspapers, it takes up one extra character, and sometimes those are at a premium. But otherwise, I don't really know why you wouldn't use it. There's one example that we're looking online with where it do, it creates ambiguity. Let's go back to Anne Rand. To my mother, comma, Anne Rand, comma, and God. Now we have Anne Rand as my mother? No, because you, you would be my mother, Ayn Rand. Yeah, but I'm saying it isn't Ayn Rand. My mother isn't the comma, Rand. I don't think adds ambiguity at all. I think we're, we're wondering now because it's an, it's an, they're saying it's, a, it's a opposite um, my mother. So it could be Ayn Rand no. here. It could be my mother. Or I always say I Ayn. It's Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand could be my mother or not. I mean, I'm saying, listen, to my mother, comma. Well, then without the comma, it's clear that she's not. It's Without the comma, it's her. It's clear that it's that it's your my mother, Ayn Rand. Without the comma. With the comma, it separates them. I don't I don't really see much ambiguity. Let's listen to this again. Let's just, I'm just sorry. I don't, I'm trying to figure this out. To my mother, comma, Ayn Rand, comma, and God. Now let's take out the comma. To my mother and to my mother, comma, and Rand and God. Yeah, you're right, actually. Well, in either in either case, you actually do have a little bit of ambiguity. In the first case, when you've got the Oxford comma in there, it is it it could possibly be unclear whether or not Anne Rand was your mother. To my mother, who is named Anne Rand and God, right? So that could be. But but if you take it out, you have the the other problem, which is that. Well, I guess your mother is not Anne Rand and God, is it? Um, yeah, that's yeah, what I'm saying. I can see how there's a little bit of ambiguity there, but those cases seem really rare. They to do. Me. Mm-hmm. I actually think, Fletcher, your point is well taken. Why not just always use it, other than like the adding a character? Because it just seems simpler if we just always used them when needed. I mean, so then there's no ambiguity. So can we dig back just a little? I have two questions. One is why is, do we call it an Oxford comma? Well... There's a place called Oxford in, in England. <laughs> it, it, it actually came from the university, Oxford University and their university press. Um, they published a style guide and, and it's in-house rules it was for you know compositors and readers. And in there, I believe it wasn't from the very beginning though, but I think it was in 1904, something like that. I should know this off the top of my head and I don't. But in the early 19, oh, here it is, in 1905, 1904, uh, it was the 18th edition that they made a point about the Oxford comma, which was not called the Oxford comma. It was just saying that there should be a comma after uh, to set off such words as more ever, however, all this stuff. So that was when it started. And since then, it got called the Oxford comma because of that. But the interesting thing is that the British, most British style guides, unlike the Oxford style manual, don't advocate using it, which I think is sort of interesting. And also here in Canada, it's not uh, the Canadian press does not use it either in their style book. So it's it's already we're getting to the point where I agree that it's it's probably fairly useful. But it's interesting how in regardless of what we were talking about earlier with with uh, Pullman, a lot of people don't feel it's necessary at all. I think in a lot of cases it's not necessary. I also think there are enough ambiguous cases that maybe using it is not the worst idea in the world. Which I think goes back to our basic, sort of the, the tenor of our talks all the time. We're basically advocating language as a means of clear communication. And I think in, I think what Fletcher said is co- completely correct. 
we should use it when it when it aids in clarity. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I'm I'm good with that. And you guys uh, actually answered what was going to be my other question, which was how long has this uh, been a thing? And and I guess it was since about 1904 or 1905. 1905. Yeah. I checked. <laughs> I was wrong by <laughs> <right> here. <laughs> July 1905. <laughs> but I think we should, Kathy. Why don't you bring up Kathy found. Uh, we found an interesting case where the Oxford comma cost $10 million. I, it was a class action lawsuit uh, for a dairy company. The drivers for the dairy company sued the company uh, for overtime pay. And uh, they, but you ha- were supposed to get 1.5 times normal pay if you worked over 40 hours a week, according to state law in Maine. But the exemption was the company doesn't have to pay overtime for the following activities. And I have to read this, which sounds boring. It's the canning, comma, processing, comma, preserving, comma, freezing, comma, drying, comma, marketing, comma, storing, comma, packing for shipment or distribution of agricultural produce, meat, fish. Okay, the opening line, there's no comma after shipment before the or. So it's packing for shipment or distribution of is one clean clause. So the dairy said that the drivers didn't get overtime because they did distribution, not pat, and the, the law was packing for shipment and distribution were separate activities. But the lawyers, I mean, the judge said, there's no comma, it's ambiguous, so the dairy owed them $10 million. Which is a good argument for being careful with that comma when <laughs> necessary. And, and John Dean was correct, that that is a whole other show, isn't it? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, I think we can go on to our next word that is a source of great confusion. I'm going to read to you a letter. Uh, this is, goes back a long time for, to 1844, but it's still a matter of confusion. Quote, um, when a newspaper is published bi-weekly, we receive two copies a week, but the New York Journal of Medicine comes to us once in two months instead of twice a month. If bi-weekly means twice a week, why should bi-monthly be, mean once in two months and not twice a month? So right now, right off the bat, what does bi-monthly mean? What does bi-weekly mean? <laughs> well, I, I can imagine a universe in which they both mean the exact same thing. Uh, yeah, is bi-weekly every, uh, twice a week or is it every two weeks? And is bi-monthly twice a month or is it every two months? I don't know the answer. That's the answer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> both. <laughs> See? <laughs> so they could be the same thing. My bi-weekly could be every two weeks and my bi-monthly could be twice a month, which means those two words could mean the same thing. Yes. That's insane. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. I agree. That's a real problem. The problem comes originally from the bi part. And the bi part, you know, bi comes from the Latin and it means two, twice. In the 1800s, Kathy and I found mostly bi-weekly meant twice a week. But today? It means mainly every two weeks. And then I'm going to add like the really irritating wrinkle, biannual, you don't use to mean twice a year. I mean, I guess you could, but I don't think it's ever used to mean that. Isn't biannual only used to mean nowadays? No, no, the opposite. Every two. No, it means twice a year. It, it doesn't does. mean every two years. Here we go again. Bicentennial. <laughs> you see, this is a problem. <laughs> this is when you like make yourself a stiff drink and say, how the hell with it. I know. <laughs> I think. Fortnightly. <laughs> Do we have a solution for this? We have a couple. We can use semi comes from the Latin. And semi means is half or something's like twice in a period. So a semi-annual would be, a semi-monthly would be twice a month. The Brits say fortnight. 
or fortnightly, but I think that sounds really stuffy. I think we really should say my new magazine comes out twice a month is what I think I would say. (laughs) That actually makes me think just a couple of days ago, I set a reminder for myself on my phone to go off every two weeks. And when I set it, the little description underneath it said bi-monthly. And and today I looked at it again and it's changed through no uh, action of my own to every two weeks. So even even this phone isn't completely sure what it needs to be saying. Well, I think it's just incredible. I mean, that that opening letter, letter we read to you, I mean, it's just incredibly confusing. I think there's no need to use these words. They're just all you're going to do is confuse people. One suggestion we found was to say biweekly and then like comma, I in other words, every two weeks. But then why say biweekly? Just forget that. Mm-hmm. There's no need. To me, I'm just thinking out loud. I would think personally, if I saw bi-weekly, I would, I would take that to mean every two weeks, not twice in a week. Yeah, what about I would, you guys? I mean, to me, bi-weekly means twice a week, two, every two weeks. Yeah. I'm getting confused. I wouldn't know. I Honestly, I, w- I would just ask for clarification. I think that's the safest thing. <laughs> well, I'm going to throw another word out to you guys. I just thought of it biennial we have biannual which generally means occurring twice in a year what does biennial mean that would mean to me every two years i think so yes pretty much so okay (laughs) but it can also be i'm just thinking why have biennial and biannual oh because biannual is biannual is only twice a year biannual is not every two years but biannual biannual, is every two years but not to get confusing but biannual can also so can't we do something like that with weekly can we make it bi-weekly and bi-weekly bi-weekly i don't know (laughs) biannual usually is occurring twice a year Let's get that straight. It's yeah. usually occurring twice a year. <laughs> Biennial is usually every two years. They both have the same roots, too. The the uh, annual and annual change to E just as a, as a sort of a term, but they both come initially from the Latin and both came originally from biannual. But biennial can also mean, uh, this I'm talking <laughs> as a plant, as the husband of a plant person, can also mean continuing or lasting for two years, like a That's biennial perennial. plant. What? No, no, but biennial can be a flowering plant that takes two years to complete its biological life cycle. I just looked it up. Oh, okay. Because Brandon's never <laughs> okay. mentioned that. He only mentions my, my husband used to be a nursery man, so I never heard. I've heard perennial and annual. A biennial plant is a flowering plant that takes two years to complete its biological life cycle. So we've learned something. <laughs> Do we care? <laughs> Sorry. I'm just still like, I think that we should just say twice a year, every two years, once a year, every year, like that. I think so, too. And I think that we should say annual instead of annual from here on in, too. (laughs) Okay, moving on. Fletcher, can you tell us the difference between metaphor and simile? They both you. Yeah, I can. Uh, Well, a simile (laughs) at, at the most basic level, I guess, uses the word like or as. Right. So um, uh, he's he's like a kangaroo. That's a simile. But if you say he's a kangaroo, that's a metaphor. You're very good. Very good. <laughs> you must have tested well as a child. That is what I did. <laughs> that is all I did. But that is what I did. <laughs> These are two that actually I've got to say throw me. I have to stop a lot of times, um, even though I know you're right. Simile simile has like. 
in comparison, a metaphor doesn't. I mean, your eyes are like limpid pools as a simile. Your eyes are limpid pools as a metaphor, period. It's interesting, though, because the these two words, metaphor was number 24 on the 25 most looked up words of all time on MiriamWebster.com. Everyone, or a lot of people, I'll be more technical, get very confused by this. I, I actually, I'm just like Kathy, I did too. I, I used to sort of switch them around. I used to always think a simile. Simile seems less common than metaphor, but I think we use similes a lot more than metaphors. I think that's right. And, and I mean, an easy way for me, is this easy? I don't even know. An easy way for me personally to remember was that simile is something that's similar, right? And so when you say something's a person is like a kangaroo, you're saying they're similar to a kangaroo as opposed to actually being one. Mm-hmm. You're right. I like that. That's actually a nice mnemonic. Is it? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's very good. Okay. <laughs> the thing that gets me, though, is as Ross said, I think that we see, we, we checked and we found metaphor appears more often in just in, in, in magazines and in websites, in, in, you know, talking. And I think the thing that's strange is a lot of times we talk about mixed metaphors and more often than not, they're mixed similes. But I think, you know, you lose the alliteration. So, you, I mean, a mixed simile just doesn't sound good. No. But think about and, it. And metaphor is much more poetic. Simile seems more, you. maybe this is just me. Simile seems like a more utilitarian thing. Uh, a metaphor seems like it's a little bit grander. Yeah, it does. It, it does, has a little actually. more of a flair. It's like, hmm, yes, I'm using metaphors. Right. Yeah, simile sounds sort of scientific and boring. Oh, a simile. Sorry, I don't know why I'm getting into this whole fantasy here, but oh, it's just a simile. But we use similes a lot more than we use metaphors, even though we talk more about metaphors. That's what really sort of interested both of us on that one as well. Well, because I think also you say things are metaphorical. You don't say they're similar. Well, you say similar. Yeah. Similar. That's the word. Yeah. (laughs) There's a word. There There you go. Biennial. Yeah. (laughs) Well, this is this is creating an existential crisis for me, which segues neatly into our or not so neatly into our next word, commonly used, often not really understood what the meaning is. Existential. Existential, I believe, is something that is based in existence, something that um, I, I mean, I know there's existentialism uh, as a philosophy, but when you say someone's having an existential crisis, that refers to someone having a crisis about their actual existence. Very good. Is that right? I mean, that, that's that's close. Look, I had I had some philosophy classes, and I'm afraid you're going to get to a, another word in a little bit that's going to uh, really trip me up. I had some philosophy classes, but I didn't pay a ton of attention when we talked about existentialism. <laughs> How existential of you! <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but pretty much, I mean, like at its at its at its most basic, yeah, because that word exist is in there, so it means of or pertaining to existence. I mean, existential, how it's often used nowadays, is more related to the philosophy, which is your Kierkegaard and your Sartre and all that, which um, I think is a lot of what's bandied about now is that kind of existentialism, and. I suspect a lot of people don't really know what that is other than the fact that you wear a black beret and smoke cigarettes and sit and drink coffee. Am I right? I think so. I don't think you smoke cigarettes yeah. anymore, though. You probably vape, but whatever. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so modern. <laughs> but what so got me actually about, I looked this up because I'd forgotten my philosophy class. And existentialism apparently was revolutionary and Sartre apparently 
sort of coined the uh, the philosophy, or sort of figured out the philosophy, and then he then later on they went backwards to uh, Kierkegaard. But they said that uh, this you guys can explain this to me if you remember better than I. But basically, um, most philosophy felt that essence preceded existence. Existentialism was revolutionary and it turned the tables and said that existence precedes essence. And that was the central claim of existentialism, the idea that um, existence comes first and then the things that make you up, you know, your personality or whatever essence comes afterwards. This is why I stopped being a philosophy major and switched to English literature, you realize. <laughs> I, this is when I start getting like panicky and I get a little sweaty and I think like, oh, let me go have my cigarette and cup of coffee and sit in the cafe. You know? <laughs> no. I, it, it's, con it, it's confusing to me. I, I've got to admit. I, I mean, the essence and the this, I, I, I can't even begin to expound upon it. Well, they're big ideas that we're not going to I mean, we're not going to be able to boil them down here into uh, 20 words or anything. No. But I, I think, though, that to some degree, though, do we end up like throwing these words out to the extent where they really don't have any meaning? That's what really, I think, happens often with things like existentialism. Yeah, and that's part of what we're getting at here and, and part of what we are often getting at is is that we use these words and and aren't necessarily sure what they mean. And, and we're kind of counting on other people not to necessarily be sure what they mean either. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's like all a big bluff. We're all, we're all sort of playing poker. I just want to interject the world. So you were talking about that to me, the whole point though of existentialism is that as, as we use it for the philosophy now is I didn't know about the existence. I'm sure I did back in college when I took existentialism was one of my courses. But for me, the whole thing was the fact that we are free, the notion of free will, and that everything is up to us and it's our fault or not our fault, depending on what we do. That, to me, was the crux of it. Like like the famous Sartre line, we're condemned to be free. I mean, I, 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 this is way out of my league, but um, I, I was reading, like, uh, Augustine, and, you know, he was way before any of these guys, and they talk about free will there. So free will, I don't think, really is exist is coined to existential. No, but I'm saying like it was it was like we don't know good or bad. I mean, with in existentialism, there's there there's no good or bad. There's no right or wrong. We act of free will. Everything we do is our own stuff. It's up to uh, it's up to us. Oh, I see. That's what I'm saying. That's what the crux to me, as I recall, it was of existentialism. So therefore, in that sense, though, actually to put it the other thing, so we're free to cho choose our essence. We're free to shape our own essence. Fine, but I'm saying, I'm just saying, I don't care about the essence. <laughs> <laughs> they love the essence. Oh, I she think, said I see existentially. Saying, yeah. <laughs> I'm getting existential angst now. <laughs> hey, actually, why don't we move on to, why don't we move on to that? To nihilism. Oh, gosh. Okay. This was our great headline we saw on Slate. Two million people watched a video of a lemon rolling down a hill. Because nihilism rules the internet. Um, there's a little meme that goes around the internet uh, on top of that. That um, it's the phrase "LOL, nothing matters," mm -hmm. uh, which which kind of plays in into that headline a little bit for me. Uh, by the way, you're saying nihilism, which I've heard sometimes. I, I also hear nihilism. Does yeah. it matter? Well, everybody says nihilism because of the Big Lebowski, I think. I'm convinced. Well, I, that I, that made... I had definitely heard it before that quite a lot. Uh -huh. that, it's the, that's all I'd heard, actually, bef even before that was nihilism. 
Oh, it's nihilism. Okay. Actually. No, it's nihilism, actually. What? It's actually nihilism. <laughs> it's nihilism. I always pronounce it nihilism, but let, let's look it up. Nihilism. <gasps> they just said nihilism. My pronunciation really basically comes from the Latin nihil. But uh, mm -hmm. nihilism seems to be the preferred pronunciation in English, and I'm guilty of pronouncing it as maybe a depressed Latin person would pronounce it in 400 AD or something. So let's say either one seems fine. You say nihilism, I say nihilism. Yeah. Okay. Well, we, we, we both know what we're talking about, or maybe we don't have any idea what we're talking about, depending, uh, because this is another one of those terms like ex existentialism. Uh, that I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to in philosophy class, but um, basically it's the idea that that nothing matters. A existence is is a totally senseless condition, right? And um, mm -hmm. and uh, I mean, LOL, nothing matters. Yep. The, the nihilism is belief in nothing, essentially. Yeah, it actually comes back. It goes it actually goes way back. Probably uh, was it Hegesias of uh, Cyrene thought basically it took a nihilistic viewpoint miseries outdo pleasures his conclusion was we should all commit suicide which is really a downer philosophy i have to say but not an unreasonable response if that actually is what you believe yes completely although recently i read a uh thing with a young kid uh talking about how he thought nihilism freed him or nihilism freed him he felt that if nothing mattered therefore he didn't have to really worry about being uh a jerk so he was happier maybe maybe that's a different point of view <laughs> that, that's actually sort of comforting <laughs> a little cheery uh, <laughs> the happy nihilist I guess. <laughs> well so uh, so i mean i i guess i guess at the easiest most basic level uh, when somebody talks about nihilism they're talking about the idea that that nothing we do matters there's nothing here that actually has any bearing on anything else outside of us because there isn't anything else and i guess maybe in a literal sense there isn't even us mm -hmm. uh, exactly and it's most basic uh, nihilism or nihilism however now i don't know what i'm going to say um is there's no reality nothing exists not even the world there's just nothing existential nihilism or nihilism is the one we're talking about that there's nothing to believe in there's nothing matters so you don't have to have values you don't have to goals you're just you're just existing and that's fine you don't have to worry existence is senseless so we're dealing with some i mean honestly kind of complicated philosophical ideas and and people do throw these terms around and so i have i i guess sort of a question but also a solution and i wonder if the two of you agree with this when people are using these terms we aren't necessarily sure what they're what they really think that they're saying to me it's it's really hard for us to do but i think the best solution is just to ask them what they mean by that i think you're absolutely right i think that's incredibly important i don't think it's done enough that's one thing i've liked as i've gotten older as i started asking i think when you're younger you desperately want to appear like you know stuff so you just like let it go over you and i think that's it's a it's an unfortunate thing because you're right. You don't know what they might not know what they're saying. Right. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and and maybe maybe they don't realize that or maybe they're trying to sound smarter. It's hard to say, it to be, but, but maybe you'll learn that. Um, and if it turns out they don't know what they're saying, but they think they do, then they might learn that as well. And, uh, you know, and everybody learns something. And isn't isn't that nice? <laughs> it's very nice. But it is, it's, it's hard to do. Though. Existence has meaning, Fletcher. <laughs> <laughs> No, I think you're absolutely right. Don't you think, Ross? 
Oh, definitely. Although I, I do think, though, that if someone's casually throwing the term out, like you're at a bar, I would leave it. I think I think we have to pick, again, context. When to question people and when to not question people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, buy, the... buy another round or, or <laughs> yeah. get into a, a heated Someone having an existential crisis on the third beer. I'm going to believe him or B, I think, in that case. <laughs> We're going to jump back now to something we were talking about a couple of weeks ago, and it's it's one of those things that Kathy and I both got real fired up about, Ross a, quite a bit less so, but um, a listener uh, who we hear from uh, fairly often named Rachel pointed out that she had never heard the d- definition of begs the question that Kathy and I talked about, how how it's it's a logical term and it refers to a circular argument, basically. And she'd always heard it as as raises the question. And she pointed out that her even her computer dictionary had the raises the question definition as the first definition, which surprised me just because I I know that that's not exactly where it, it came from. Uh, but then I looked it up, you know, in the OED and Merriam-Webster, and they, of course, have it as the first definition as well. Now, as you two often remind me, that's the most commonly used definition. So it, it's not that surprising, I guess, that that would be there. But um, it brought up some interesting things about just where the term comes from. Well, I can actually talk a little bit about the Latin and the Greek if you want to get really bored really quickly. Well, I, I don't think it's actually boring. I think it's I think it's pretty interesting because that's a really strange phrase, begs the question. First mm-hmm. of all, how does that even mean circular argument? Well, let's start at the beginning and then I'll let Kathy take over because it all began probably with Aristotle. Who, had, who was basically trying to figure out what he called were logical fa- uh, fallacies. He had a phrase, to en arche lambainen, I'm doing with a modified modern ancient Greek pronunciation, which means um, asking the original point or assuming the original point. That Greek phrase, that was translated from the Greek into Latin, and it became in Latin, petitio principi, which again meant, in effect, um, assuming a conclusion, in effect, a circular argument. Petitio Principi was, was basically mistranslated into, into, or translated into English as begging the question, which um, was still the idea was a circular reasoning. However, the term beg was, it should not, I think that was a poor choice of the word assuming. People with that translation, people began to, basically began to assume it was asking the question or not the uh, assuming a conclusion. Right. Maybe it's not the most clear translation of, of that phrase. Yeah. Well, I think, the, yeah, because I mean, it should have just been assuming the conclusion. But I, I the the leap from begging the question, because we don't say begging in, in that in that sense with any other phrase, do we? No, but I think with the Greek, the Greek was asking for the original thing. I mean, another way to do it in Greek is to ex arches, which is asking for something in the beginning. Correct. Itain. So I think the asking became, you know, I beg you, you can say I beg you uh, I beg that you do this. And in fact, I'm asking that you do this in a perhaps an oldie English way. But I'm way. saying what, what I find interesting is that the leap then from begging the question to mean raising, I agree that it's a very sloppy translation. That said, it has always been used in logic to mean that circular reasoning, the, the, the coming up with, you know, um, proving a point in effect or trying to prove a point with something that, that isn't proven. The thing that gets me, though, is the, the, the notion of then it became begging the question to mean raising the question. Where else do we use a beg in that sense? You, you beg someone's pardon. That's not raising pardon. 
You beg leave. You're asking pardon, though. Yeah, but I, I, to me, I, I still think that making it into begging the question, I, I don't quite see how we ended up there so right, that, easily. That, that term beg is very strange to use uh, to mean to mean raise the question. Merriam-Webster points out, I, I read this big, long article that they have. They point out that um, there are people, of course, who would be happy if, if it was a phrase like a question that begs an answer rather than mm-hmm. rather than begs the question, because we we really don't use that begs the really for any other but thing. i mean again though kathy no. just said beg your pardon and that's asking your pardon so begging a question means but to, begging could... the question is not asking the question is raising the question it's like it's 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 different than begging pardon right it's not it's not ask, it's not asking for the question it's it's raising right. no it, i agree question. with you but i'm saying it, it sort of like melds into the other is what i'm saying i can see where yeah. how it would meld into that that's what i'm trying to say it still drives me absolutely insane i'm sorry just think about it i just get like all hot <laughs> the, there's just something about it that makes me want to scream it really does it's like for heaven's sake just say raises the question <laughs> will you you know <laughs> Mi- miriam webster uh pointed out that that it's so rarely used in the way you and I want to use it, Kathy, that uh, that that's part of why they have the other definition listed as as the primary definition. And and also they they kind of call us out. But also, I feel like what they say is true, uh, that the, what they say is there are probably more of these people, meaning you and me, probably more of these people than you think. And they are judging the rest of us. <laughs> and well, that's yes, true. I am. That's 100 <laughs> percent true. Anyway, I kind of wanted to jump back to this just because I thought it was I just thought it was pretty interesting how that phrase came about how it was kind of a, a translation of a translation and a clumsy one at that and we ended up with the phrase that really isn't clear in either in either usage right can i can i throw something right. out there right here i just looked up strong's concordance of the uh uh new testament in greek and the 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 verb that aristotle used the first definition they have here is to beg for alms so maybe that's where beg came quickly. I mean, they thought of it as begging, even though it's raising in that sense. And then it came begging into English. I'm just curious. I don't know, possibly. The thing that makes me even more upset, I just found when I was like dicking around on here looking it up, is now people think begging the question, some people use it to mean dodging the question or avoiding the question. Oh, no. Oh, wow. Oh, no. <laughs> that's a great way to end so... this conversation. What? I, I, do, I do want to mention just this one little thing is that uh, this uh, linguist who was talking in a blog post about this, uh, Mark Liberman. Oh, yeah. He says at the very end, my recommendation, never use the phrase yourself. Use assume the conclusion or raise the question, depending on what you mean, and cultivate an attitude of serene detachment in the face of its use by others. Ooh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> I'm not good at that serene detachment, though. <laughs> This episode of You're Saying It Wrong has been produced by me, Fletcher Powell, help from Beth Golay and Luann Stevens in the studios of KMUW in Wichita, Kansas. Kathy Petrus records from her home in Seattle, Washington, Ross Petrus from his home in Toronto, Ontario. If you have a question for Kathy and Ross, you can tweet it at us. We're at YSIWpod. Email them at kandrpetrus at gmail.com or email me at powell at kmuw.org. And if you like what we're doing, leave us a rating or even a review at Apple Podcasts. Those reviews help us. They're how we get more people to find us. Kathy and Ross's book, You're Saying It Wrong, was published by 10 Speed Press. You can find that and much of their other work pretty much anywhere you get books. We recommend your local independent bookstore. 
And of course, Kathy and Ross are always up to something. You can check out their other work through their website, kandrpetras.com. That's K-A-N-D-R-P-E-T-R-A-S.com. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back in two weeks.